This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow, where we examine the impacts of the pandemic on real estate and the people in the industry. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. On this episode, our guest is Alicia Glenn, the former New York City Deputy Mayor of Housing and Economic Development, who's just launched her own development firm, M Squared. Alicia, who also worked at Goldman Sachs, is heading for mid-sized cities outside New York, places like Charlotte, Nashville and Austin. She's aiming to build mixed-use spaces and create housing for people on middle incomes. She's speaking here about being pushy to get things done, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good when it comes to getting housing built, and the future of New York City after this crisis and the type of leadership it might take to get it there. I'm not abandoning New York City. My God, I am the biggest diehard New Yorker of all time. It's it's more that one of the amazing things about New York City and having been involved in New York City housing for so long is that we've developed extraordinary programs and extraordinary financial structures and a series of tools that allow cities and private capital and developers to build great buildings with great mixes of incomes and mixes of uses. And so part of what, I, what I'm really excited about is being able to take some of that learning and some of the structures that we've developed in New York City successfully and bring them to other cities that have not necessarily been using those models. In New York City, we spent a lot of time on a very, very, very serious affordable housing crisis having to play catch up, right? We're in such a deep hole. We need so much more housing. And it's this constant struggle to keep up. But what I also love about working in other cities is maybe we can help them future-proof. Maybe we can help them get out in front of these issues so that as their economies grow, their populations grow, and the cost of housing grows, they can begin to put into place strategies today that will actually sort of address the affordable crisis before it gets too crazy. Do you think, though, that New York City is being held up as a success story with affordable housing? I mean, I think it's still considered to be a pretty terrible crisis. Well, it depends on who you talk to, right? Um, There's always going to be, and there should be, a lot of people who rightly say we don't have enough affordable housing for our lowest income residents. And that's a, a, a significant and real challenge. Very low-income housing is predominantly the domain of the federal government. It always has been, and it should be. And in fact, it's in federal law under the National Housing Act that we as a nation are supposed to provide affordable housing for all Americans. Those programs have been underfunded for years. And so the cities have often had to step in and do their part in order to really address a crisis for our lowest-income families. New York City has been actually at the forefront of figuring out how to use municipal resources in conjunction with federal resources and on their own to go well above and beyond right what any other city has done so although we may not have solved the problem we do so much more than any other jurisdiction in the country that we should be rightly applauded for those efforts and for some of the innovative techniques that we've brought it's not you're not going to solve the crisis that there is no such thing as solving the affordable housing crisis but making a significant dent in the problem and beginning to get people to understand that this is not just about low-income families and low-income workers. It's about people who are your everyday worker, your essential work. All of those people are also suffering from having, you know, rent-burdened situations. And, And at the end of the day, unless we start thinking more holistically about it, our whole ability to maintain a strong urban economy is going to really become unwound. 
because you can't sustain a strong urban economy if you don't have all of those other folks as part of the equation. And so I do think that New York has done a lot of interesting things over the years. And, and those learnings should rightly be brought to other jurisdictions. It's not to say that we've figured it out. It's not to say that we've solved the problem, but we've done more than any other jurisdiction has. Let's talk for a moment about how you're gonna execute on this. I understand Charlotte, Dallas, Boston, Denver, Austin, all on your list, different cities, different systems, different communities. How are you planning on getting these things financed? Well, so our model is to partner with really strong and interesting developers on the ground, right? All real estate at the end of the day is local, right? It's like all politics is local in many ways. And so, you know, we at M Squared are not going to be able to have boots on the ground and subject matter and market experts in every single city that we think offer interesting opportunities. So one of the critical gating questions for us is, are there developers um, and partners in these cities who either have traditionally been pure play affordable housing developers and are interested in expanding their product type, right? Because if you're a pure play affordable housing developer, you're often reliant on chasing subsidy every year. There isn't enough subsidy. There just never is. And so it's very hard to do more if your business model relies on deeply subsidized um, housing. And so we want to work with affordable housers there who are interested in serving a, a wider range of income, allowing them to have different kinds of financial structures and allowing us to invest equity alongside them and help them structure their deals. Or on the alternative, market rate developers who are in these jurisdictions, who either because they're interested in this intellectually or socially, or quite honestly, just see it as a counter cyclical hedge to putting all of your you know, eggs in a market rate or luxury basket, helping market rate developers who have incredible skill sets, great teams, but don't understand affordable housing or start getting really nervous, right? When you throw a lot of acronyms at them, you know, alphabet soup, um, allowing them to also expand their product offerings, diversify their portfolios by bringing our expertise in public-private partnerships and affordable housing to them. And so I really think of it as like the third way, right? You'll have the affordable housing crowd on in one lane, the market rate guys in the other lane, and we want to go right down the middle of that of that highway, if you will, and say, this is a really interesting new product and you can get strong returns if well-structured, but you need great developers on the ground. How are you going to measure success? Have you set goals um, in terms of maybe saying, we want to do X amount of housing for X amount of people by X date uh, for this subsection of the community? Is that how you're, you're going ahead with it? That's a very good question. And it goes to, I think, where we started in some ways, which is the scale of the challenge and the scale of the problem. Because when you look at the raw data of you know, take a city like Charlotte, they've recently done some work where they say they need about 35,000 new units of housing in order to keep up with demand. So one way to think about that is, wow, success would be if we built 35,000 units of housing in Charlotte. But that's not, in fact, what's gonna happen, right? Because there are gonna be multiple players in the field. And so I think for us, it's about saying, can we bring to a city like Charlotte, where there's clearly a need for middle-income housing, affordable housing, and just market-rate housing, because there's such a supply-demand um, mismatch. Success for us would be if we could do a couple of deals in Charlotte, even if it's only three or 400 units, but it proves out the thesis that you can put these deals together, having public participation, 
but not cannibalizing the other subsidies that are necessary for low-income housing, you're in essence creating a new, a, a, a new asset class within real estate itself. And so I always say to people, if you do four or 500 units in a place like Charlotte, and then two years later, there's a bunch of people competing with us to do similar kinds of work, that's victory, right? Because then you've changed the game. You know, so what we wanna do is be able to go to cities, make a dent, make a dent, right? We're not gonna solve the whole problem, but demonstrate the thesis that there is a third way and that these are really high performing assets and that we collectively all have a stake in making cities more affordable. Let's talk about New York for a moment. I know you've said plans to cut like 2.3 billion of capital funds from the city's budget in the middle of this pandemic is, I think you've said, very short-sighted, essentially telling people who need housing that the administration doesn't care about them. If that's a bad idea, what's a good idea? What should be done? Well, it's not just the people who need housing, it's that continuing to invest in housing and and other large-scale development in New York City is really critical to being a pro-growth city, and it's also about jobs. I mean, housing, building housing, renovating housing, building mixed-use projects, these are very job-intensive industries, um, and especially now when the construction industry has been suffering tremendously under the various shelter-in-place um, and public health um, orders, the notion that you wouldn't try to continue to kickstart the economy by providing jobs for people to build housing, which we also desperately need, just to me is, is so counterintuitive, particularly when the cost of capital is so low. Um, these are very smart long-term capital investments. We, we had a massive housing shortage before COVID. We're going to have a massive housing shortage after COVID, right? Even if you know, 5,000 people move to the Hamptons, let me tell you, that's not making a difference in what's really the challenge for people in New York City. And so to slow down the machine that we've built in New York City and continue to invest in things like building high-rise high jails, to me, you have really, really thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Like your priorities have gotten very, very confused if you're not continuing to double down on the things that will ultimately make your city stronger. Okay, so watching from afar, removed from the administration, how would you rate your former boss's handling of all of this? Well, I mean, I, you know, that's a complex question because those, there's many, many things going on. I mean, I, I would stick to the things that I think it is fair to say, which I'm more of a subject matter expert on. I'm not a public health expert, I'm not a criminal justice expert. But I do think that the mayor has to be able to articulate a vision of what a strong New York City is going to look like coming out of this. And the city has, in fact, gone through nothing as terrible as this. But between 9-11, Sandy, the fiscal crisis, you know, having a clear vision that New York City needs to continue to make investments in its um physical urban infrastructure, which includes housing and job creation, is incredibly important as a leadership matter. Um, and, and being able to make the choices that are necessary to preserve the programs that leverage private capital, that give the business community um, assurances that you continue to be open for business, that you care about investing in your city. To me, this is a very important tone, and you have to make difficult but smart choices. And, you know, we spent five or six years developing an extraordinary relationship with the real estate and construction industry and investing billions of dollars. 
Um, and, and to not continue to build on that, to me, is, is, is not showing the kind of leadership we need about the future of New York. It's, it's thinking too, too right this minute, right? Really good leaders can do both. Don't just cut the budget because you're cutting the budget. Really think about the long-term implications of which agencies you're cutting. Um, and I would do it differently. Where would you cut then? <laughs> the cuts have got to come from somewhere. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty famous for saying the following. If it costs $6 million to build a toilet in Central Park, we have a problem on our hands, okay? And it's a big problem, which is that the city of New York has an extremely large capital budget. It is hindered by ancient, complex, and politically driven procurement rules that make what should cost maximum million dollars cost $5 million. Why don't we spend more energy on blowing up our entire procurement system so that we can actually get value for money? Why don't we stop spending $6 million on a toilet? Why don't we think about some of the ways in which the city really does not spend money effectively and think about places where the city is leveraging capital very effectively? Why don't we think about things that are hard but really true? We could engage in a one-year um, wage increase freeze. What if, if all municipal employees froze their wages at today as opposed to the, the planned 2021 increases, we would save a billion dollars. A billion dollars is about what they're cutting out of the housing budget for the next two years. And I don't know about you, but most people I know are taking either a wage cut or or not getting a raise next year. And this is not to say anything bad about municipal workers. I was one. But there are lots and lots of ways in which you can look at a budget and your priorities can be reflected in that budget. I think the conversation about the police budget is an absolutely timely and appropriate budget. Should we be spending $9.8 billion building new jails? I don't know, I think you could have a reasonable conversation about that. So I, I, there's no one answer. I don't wanna simplify it because they're very complex issues. But there are definitely ways for the budget to reflect not just your political values around what's equitable, but also what is good long-term strategic investment for the city's balance sheet. And I would continue to argue that putting more housing, more projects like Brooklyn Navy Yard, like BAT, like Made in New York TV studios, all of these things create assets for the city over time that deliver extraordinary ROI. Um, both literal ROI, but also in terms of job creation and being a pro-growth city. So I would look at it very differently. You talked about what makes a great leader, the ability to think about now and the ability to think about future. You now you're a leader of your own firm. And there are very few firms that are run by women, of course, about 14% nationally. And just for context, about 6% of all of the S&P 500 companies are led by women. And I know you've said in the past that women are given a harder time for their failures or their missteps or the deals that they didn't get done than men happen to be. Are you anticipating that being an issue as you forge down this path? I certainly hope not. <laughs> I, you know, I think, I think the issues around gender and leadership and success are, again, obviously very complex because all women are not the same um, and all women have different strengths. Um, with all of our bumps and warts and flaws and strengths. And, um, but I, I do think two things. One, personally, I mean, my, my greatest, I think my, my two greatest strengths historically have been being able to build really great teams and not being 
scared of having people who might even be smarter than me work for me. And I think this also goes to the leadership issue, which is that being willing to have people tell you that you're wrong, to challenge you, and to be smart enough and strong enough to then say, you know what, you're right. I, that doesn't make sense. My initial gut was wrong or the path I've been going down is wrong. I've always, whether I was a deputy mayor or when I was a Goldman, have, have assembled teams of people who pretty much like to tell me I'm wrong a lot of the time. And that has proven to be a really big success formula for me. And I think with respect to gender, you know, a lot of women leaders, I think, really spend a lot of time trying to be more perfect with respect to their their managerial styles or what kind of boss they are or how they're coming across. To me, that's that's like a lot of that's a lot of energy, right? It's like having to put on a full face of makeup every morning, right? I don't have time for that. Um, I I've always been a person who I'm the same with my team, whether we're running the biggest deal that New York City has ever seen, or if we're having a glass of wine in my house. I think. I think women often hold themselves to a very high standard of having to put on that makeup, whatever that makeup means. And that's hard, and that takes a lot of energy. Um, and, I, and I wonder and I worry about that. What do you think, what are you anticipating, knowing what you know as a, as a long-life New Yorker, as a, as a pushy person, as a person who's got stuff done, what are you anticipating being the biggest roadblock or the biggest challenge of actually achieving your goals? in these communities? Is it navigating the tax structure? Is it dealing with the community's reticence to development? Have you thought about what it's going to be and what it might mean? There's two different pieces of the biggest challenges. One is um, ultimately raising capital that actually wants to do this work and will put their money where their mouth is, right? There's a lot of talk um, from institutional investors around whether it's diversity or addressing social inequities or, or affordable housing and ESG. And, and, I, and I always say to people, that's fantastic. You know, I'm glad that that's what everybody's talking about. But if you guys even put 1% of your AUM in strategies that actually address these issues, that would be an unbelievable game changer, right? I want to take this from being like a bespoke kind of tiny part of the industry and bring it more front and center. And I think that's a challenge. I think it's a challenge to educate investors who are used to looking at, um, particularly in the real estate world, in, in very narrow food groups, and, and saying to them, you know, this is not a hotel strategy. This is not a commercial office strategy. This is not a pure play affordable housing strategy. You know, this is development, but this is development that actually de-risks development because you're working with the government, not against the government. Right, so I think that that's one of the biggest challenges is how institutional investors and big um, capital providers can start thinking outside of the box and providing us with enough capital to do this at scale. I think that's, that's the challenge, but also an extraordinary opportunity and, and exactly the kinds of conversations I've had at Goldman Sachs and other places in my life. And I, I feel very confident that we can, we can have those conversations and be successful, but I think it's challenging. On the other side, I think the challenge is Finding great partners on the ground who really, really um, can do both, can be both um, listen to community, right, understand the politics, but also be really good business people. 
and understand that no matter what you do, you can't please all of the people all of the time, right? That's never gonna be the answer. So working with people who are smart and practical and mission-driven and saying, you know what? If we're 80% there, boy, that's a home run, right? If we can get 80% of the people who hate everything to say this is a really interesting project, that is a home run, right? Because most people hate developers and hate projects. So don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Let's just keep moving the good a little further along the continuum. You said people hate developers, hate projects. Do you think that hate's going to intensify <laughs> after all of this? I, I am an optimist. I think that it's, look, developers have to bear some responsibility for the fact that they've lost the narrative, right? Um, there are a lot of developers who have done some pretty stupid things that have only flamed fueled the flames of nimbyism, um, whether it's making stupid design choices, right, which make your building look, I don't know, somehow super extra ugly. I don't know how people manage to do that, but you'd be amazed. Um, doing things like refusing to meet, you know, with the local merchants association because they're too busy swanning around on their private plane somewhere. like. There's, there's some basic stuff, right, that developers have unfortunately done um, that, that make it harder, right, for people to understand that good development is good for everybody. And, and so I, I hope that part of what M Squared is able to accomplish is to help, help get that narrative back, you know, back on track. Um, that, you know, doing nothing and being against everything will not lead to better outcomes. It just won't. Right. And, and so it's really about how can we build in a truly equitable way that supports diverse economies and, and diverse economies mean diverse people, diverse incomes, diverse occupations, and being able to know that you can pretty much afford to stay there for the foreseeable future. And, and that has to become baked into the conversation and developers have to become part of that dialogue and not run away from it. Right. Or do dumb stuff. Like swanning around on planes or whatever. Well, look at I know who doesn't like to swan around. I mean, I've been known to swan around, but I think you know what I mean. I mean, I think and look, they're very most developers are actually decent people, but the ones who aren't decent really ruin it for the rest of us, right? And and that's a shame. You talk a little bit about diversity there. I mean, just looking back over the past couple of weeks, outpouring of anger, um, outpouring of grief, and a lot of reflection uh, in the form of demonstrations and widespread discussion about. Uh, racism and social injustice. Has that changed at all how you'll be approaching the company, um, your movement into these communities? Like, for example, I'm thinking, would you keep a metric on the number of people of colour you employ or the number of minority-owned businesses you engage? Um, the answer to that is we were, we were going to do all of that anyway. That's who we are. That's baked into our DNA. Well before, and, and look, what's going on right now is merely just the, 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 not merely, it is it is a larger expression of what has been going on in this country for the past 150 years. And for those of us who have spent our lives working in dense urban communities and at the intersection of public policy, community development, and real estate finance, this is exactly the space that I've been involved in and thinking about um, and, and, and devoting my heart and my brain to. I mean, 
five years ago, we set up a program, the first program in the city of New York to set aside development sites for women and minority developers because there weren't enough people getting sites, right? And the only way in which people can begin to embrace development is by having some of the people who are developing those projects look like them, be from those communities. And you can't just talk about it. You have to do something about it. And so the work I've been doing, you know, at the Urban Investment Group, I used to, if I got a pile of resumes and there weren't people of color and women in it, I threw out the pile. Like, this is not news to me. I've spent my entire life actually being in the diversity business. And so, no, our business model hasn't changed. It only makes it that much more relevant, more important, and hopefully more attractive for investors and developers to want to work with us because we're not talking the talk. Like, literally, everybody I hire or talk to is a diverse person in some fashion. Not that we won't hire a few guys along the way, but that's, that's where I live, right? That, that's where I live. And I, as a white woman, I'm not going to have the solutions to the long-standing, complex issues around structural racism, but I can certainly try to be part of a solution by bringing my skills and what I've learned along the way to bear in those conversations and to be investing thoughtfully in those communities and with people who are experts in that field. Are you given, I, I don't, you're obviously, you already said you're an optimist. Um, has this given you more optimism about how things might be moving forward in this industry, which has, someone said to me the other day, if, you, if, you, if you're not white, male and privileged, you're a minority in commercial real estate. So has this given you, I don't know, more hope for the future? That statement is sadly true and will remain true for quite a while, right? Because change doesn't happen overnight. Um, and revolution is certainly not first thing you think of when you think of that commercial real estate or private equity. Um, but it, you know, I am optimistic in the sense I you know don't let a don't let a good crisis go to waste. And this crisis is revealing a lot of different ugly things about America, about race, about gender, about what goes on in communities, about what resources people have about how you know, six people are living in a one-bedroom apartment you know, and coming to do your nails and clean your house and drive your Uber and change your bedpan. And if that is making America more aware and woke, then that's a good thing as long as the people who control money and have power in this country commit themselves to do something about it. And you can do lots of different things about it, but one thing you can do about it is try to build better cities and better neighborhoods and not just you know, do philanthropy for a week and go to a gala. And, and so I do think that this may be the moment where people realize that making long-term investments in our cities, in the, in the true meaning of the word, in what makes a great city a great city, this could be a game changer. You've obviously had a lot of um, jobs with you know, enormous responsibility, a lot of people working with you, a lot of people working under you, managing a lot of projects and a lot of money. But this is, I think, the first time that you've had, you've had your own firm, something that's entirely yours. Does anything about that frighten you or is it mainly excitement? Well, since I said earlier that I, I'm always my real authentic self and I don't put on my makeup, the truth is, of course, there are days when I'm completely freaked out and I think... What have I done? It would have been so much easier to go and take another big job um, where I could do this work. Um, But I also thought, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about how 
for women to really begin to gain the kind of power that we deserve and have not had access to over time, we also have to be the people who run the show. And you can do that in any number of ways, right? You can run for Congress, you can run for mayor, you can um, write the greatest book ever. For me, in what I do for a living, at the end of the day, if I'm serious about that, I have to be, I have to preach, I have to practice what I preach. Um, And so it's scary, but it's also incredibly exciting um, because you get to build the company that reflects your values, hire the people that you want to hire. Nobody told you you had to hire them. Um, And there's something, you know, it's pretty wild when you put your own money into something. Let me tell you, you work even harder than you used to. You know, when it's, it's your money and it's your reputation, you work really hard, but it's incredibly exciting and stimulating. Um, and also, you know who your friends are, right? You really know who the good people are and the people who will support you. Alicia, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. been really great to, to hear from you and, and get a sense of what's next. Uh, it's going to be a wild ride, but it's going to be fantastic. I'm so excited, and thank you for taking the time to, to speak with me.